Anchored in Light, a retreat guide on the transfiguration of the Lord. Introduction Three times in the Gospels, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John with him and leaves the other apostles behind. He does this when he raises Jairus' daughter from the dead, when he enters into his agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, and when he climbs Mount Tabor and is transfigured before them. The raising of Jairus' daughter is commemorated in the Sunday readings during ordinary time. The agony in Gethsemane is revisited as part of the liturgies for Palm Sunday and Good Friday. But the Transfiguration has its very own feast day every year on August 6th. St. John Paul II also included the Transfiguration of the Lord as one of the luminous mysteries of the Rosary when he published his encyclical on the Rosary of the Virgin Mary in 2002. In that encyclical, he called the mystery of the Transfiguration the mystery of light par excellence and an icon of contemplation. Contemplating the mystery of the Transfiguration and discovering what it has to say to each one of us will be the task of this retreat guide, Anchored in Light. The first meditation unpacks the spiritual meaning behind each detail of this mysterious encounter. The second meditation explores how those three apostles who witnessed the transfiguration applied that meaning to their lives. And the conference delves into how we can apply its meaning to our own lives through exercising the virtue of hope. To that end, we will also gather some valuable wisdom from the Old Testament book of Joshua. Let's begin by turning our attention to God, who never stops paying attention to us. Let's ask Him for all the graces we need, and most especially, for the grace of learning to be anchored firmly in the life-giving light of the Lord. First Meditation Going Up the Mountain The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke all narrate the event of the Transfiguration. For our meditation, let's read through St. Matthew's version. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, conversing with them. Then Peter said to Jesus in reply, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud cast a shadow over them. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell prostrate and were very much afraid. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, and do not be afraid. And when the disciples raised their eyes, they saw no one else but Jesus alone. This short passage provides many meaningful details that can positively impact our relationship with God. Let's take a look at a few of them. The most obvious detail is the setting for this event. 
St. Matthew describes Jesus as taking his chosen apostles up a high mountain by themselves. St. Luke makes the purpose of this hike more explicit, saying that they went up the mountain to pray. Jesus frequently went off by himself to pray, even if he had to get up early in the morning or stay up late at night in order to do so. And each time he finds a place away from the crowds, a place away from the noise. Jesus was God incarnate, yet in his human nature he experienced this need to be alone with his Father in prayer on a regular basis. And in spite of the inconveniences, he made it a priority throughout his life. If that was necessary for him, how much more must it be necessary for us? Throughout the Bible, mountaintops frequently appear as places of special encounters with God. In fact, the two Old Testament figures who appear during the Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah, each experienced dramatic theophanies when they ascended mountains to pray. It is no coincidence that this particular theophany also occurred on a mountaintop. To climb a mountain requires effort. As one ascends, the air becomes clear and fresh, the view expands and the busyness and confusion of everyday life seems to subside. To find God, to see God more clearly, to hear His voice and come to know Him better, we have to make the effort to create space in our lives for encounters like this. We have to climb a mountain to pray now and again. Whether that means going on a pilgrimage or a retreat, something significant usually happens when we take the risk of going up a high mountain by ourselves to pray. Moses and Elijah signify more than simply a mountaintop experience of God, however. Moses received the law of the Old Testament and compiled the first five books of the Bible. Elijah was the prophet who, though persecuted, did not actually die a martyr. At the end of his life, he was taken into heaven by a fiery chariot. Together, they represent the whole Old Testament revelation, summarized as the Law and the Prophets. They appear during the Transfiguration, conversing with Jesus. And we know from St. Luke's version what they were conversing about, Christ's exodus that he was going to accomplish in Jerusalem. In other words, God's revelation in the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets, was being brought to completion and given its definitive meaning through Christ's upcoming passion, death, and resurrection. The story of salvation is reaching its climax in Christ's paschal mystery, which will in turn reveal the true meaning of all that had come before. Here we are reminded of St. Augustine's famous phrase about the relationship between the Old and New Testaments, quoted in the Universal Catechism. The New Testament lies hidden in the Old, and the Old Testament is unveiled in the New. By entering into conversation with Moses and Elijah, Jesus shows that he himself is the key that unlocks the full meaning of sacred scripture. This is why St. Jerome could say, Ignorance of scripture is ignorance of Christ. All the Gospel writers locate this event within a precise chronology. It takes place about a week after four important statements. First, Peter's confession of faith in Jesus as the promised Messiah. Second, 
Christ's own prediction of his coming passion, which his disciples didn't understand. Third, the Lord's declaration that taking up one's own cross is a necessary condition for Christian discipleship. And fourth, Christ's promise that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see that the kingdom of God has come in power. The six to eight day period between those four statements and the Transfiguration allows scholars to estimate that the event actually occurred during or maybe even on the last day of one of the great Jewish liturgical feasts, the Feast of Tabernacles, which took place soon after the Jewish Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and lasted for eight days. This was an autumn liturgical celebration originally linked to the autumnal rains, and even in Jesus' time, elaborate water rituals were performed in the temple in Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles. The word tabernacle can also be translated tent. During the eight days of this celebration, pilgrims would come to Jerusalem and stay in tents outside the city. When Peter, James, and John witness the transfiguration, Christ's promise is fulfilled. They see the kingdom of God coming in power as Christ himself is revealed through the transforming light coming from within him, not only as the promised Messiah, but also as the Father's beloved Son over whom the divine glory, manifested by the bright cloud that overshadows them all, hovers, and to whom we all should listen to receive the words of eternal life. Peter's response to this supernatural experience is the right one. He knows that the messianic age is dawning in Christ, and so he wants to build three tents. He wants to enter into the eternal dwelling places of the righteous. But then the moment of revelation passes, and the three disciples fall down in fear and confusion, only to recover when Jesus' divine nature is once again concealed in his human nature, and he comes over to reassure them. And when the disciples raised their eyes, they saw no one else but Jesus alone. In the next meditation, we will reflect on how this experience affected the faith journey of those disciples. But for now, let's take some time in the quiet of our hearts, simply to gaze at our transfigured Lord and let the meaning of this encounter nourish our souls. Questions for personal reflection or group discussion. How deeply do I live the rhythms of the liturgical year, the different liturgical feasts, like the Transfiguration of the Lord? What could I do to bring my life into deeper harmony with the liturgy? How much of a priority is it for me to keep growing in my prayer life? How often do I go up a high mountain to be alone with God and pray? How satisfied am I with my knowledge of sacred scripture? What more can I do to continue discovering the treasures of wisdom that they contain?
three quotations to aid your meditation. Saint Pope John Paul II, Rosarium Virginis Mariae number nine. And he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun. Matthew chapter 17 verse two. The gospel scene of Christ's transfiguration in which the three apostles, Peter, James and John, appeared entranced by the beauty of the Redeemer can be seen as an icon of Christian contemplation. To look upon the face of Christ, to recognize its mystery amid the daily events and the sufferings of his human life, and then to grasp the divine splendor definitively revealed in the risen Lord, seated in glory at the right hand of the Father. This is the task of every follower of Christ, and therefore the task of each one of us. Luke chapter 9 verse 28 to 36. About eight days after he said this, he took Peter, John and James and went up the mountain to pray. While he was praying, his face changed in appearance and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were conversing with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus that he was going to accomplish in Jerusalem. Peter and his companions had been overcome by sleep, but becoming fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As they were about to part from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But he did not know what he was saying. While he was still speaking, a cloud came and cast a shadow over them, and they became frightened when they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my chosen son, listen to him. After the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. They fell silent and did not at that time tell anyone what they had seen. Mark chapter 9 verses 2 to 8. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no fuller on earth could bleach them. Then Elijah appeared to them along with Moses and they were conversing with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus in reply, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He hardly knew what to say. They were so terrified. Then a cloud came, casting a shadow over them. Then from the cloud came a voice, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone but Jesus alone with them. Second meditation, through the cross to the light. The liturgical readings for the Transfiguration of the Lord include a passage from the second letter of St. Peter. 
In this passage, St. Peter refers to his experience as an eyewitness of Christ's messianic majesty. That undeniable experience, which took place on the holy mountain, helps guarantee the reliability of the gospel. And so, St. Peter invites his readers to use the light of the transfiguration, what Jesus revealed about himself through that amazing event, as a lamp to guide them on their journey of faith. Here are St. Peter's own words, used as the first reading in the Mass for the Transfiguration. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we had been eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when that unique declaration came to him from the majestic glory. This is my Son, my Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice come from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. Moreover, we possess the prophetic message that is altogether reliable. You will do well to be attentive to it, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Clearly, the experience of the transfiguration made a lasting impact on Peter, James, and John. In Peter's mind, it was still fresh and inspiring, a spiritual reference point in his own heart, even years later. The preface for the Mass of the Transfiguration summarizes beautifully what that impact consisted in, why it remained an important spiritual reference point for the rest of their lives. For Jesus revealed his glory in the presence of chosen witnesses, and filled with the greatest splendor that bodily form which he shares with all humanity, that the scandal of the cross might be removed from the hearts of his disciples, and that he might show how, in the body of the whole church, is to be fulfilled what so wonderfully shone forth first in its head. In other words, Jesus allowed Peter, James, and John to see his divine glory at the Transfiguration because he knew that their faith would be tested during his upcoming Passion and Crucifixion. In fact, he later invited these same three disciples to accompany him in his agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. Only they witnessed his intense suffering there, when, as St. Luke records it, he was in such agony and he prayed so fervently that his sweat became like drops of blood falling on the ground. And as St. Mark records it, Jesus began to be troubled and distressed, and his soul became sorrowful even to death. Then they watched him be unjustly condemned by the Sanhedrin, scourged, crowned with thorns, and sentenced to death by Pontius Pilate, and finally crucified. Throughout his passion, which he had predicted for the first time just before his transfiguration, Jesus' appearance was absolutely contrary to what he had revealed on Mount Tabor. By giving his closest followers a glimpse of his glory, he strengthened them against the temptation to lose faith in him when they saw his suffering and apparent failure on Calvary. This is what the preface for the Mass means when it says that Jesus revealed his glory so that the scandal of the cross might be removed from the hearts of his disciples. The memory of seeing Jesus transfigured and hearing the Father's voice speak forth from the cloud 
kept their hope alive even in the shadow of the cross, when the Lord's glory was veiled by blood and bruises and a crown of thorns. The Gospel writers record the transfiguration event not only to show us who Christ is, but also because each one of us has to follow the same path that Jesus followed. As Jesus explained in the passage immediately preceding the transfiguration narrative, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. It wasn't Jesus alone who had to pass through Good Friday in order to reach Easter Sunday. Every Christian must follow the same path. Following the Lord means entering and sharing His own glory revealed on Mount Tabor, but only by also sharing in His cross. As St. Paul put it, We are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if only we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. St. Peter himself also makes the connection between suffering and glory in his first letter to all Christians. But rejoice to the extent that you share in the sufferings of Christ, so that when his glory is revealed, you may also rejoice exultantly. Following Christ means suffering in this world as Christ did, but the transfiguration reminds us, like the resurrection itself, that Christ has won an eternal victory over suffering and this fallen world, and that united to Jesus, our suffering will not be in vain. Jesus himself explained this during the Last Supper. In the world you will have trouble, but take courage, I have conquered the world. The promise of glory, of victory, is connected to the Feast of the Transfiguration in another way as well. The celebration of this liturgical feast goes back to the early centuries of Christianity, but it was only made a universal feast in the Roman Catholic liturgy by Pope Calixtus III in 1456. That summer, the army of the Ottoman Empire, which had only two years prior conquered the ancient Byzantine capital of Christendom, Constantinople, had advanced to the southern borders of Europe itself laying siege to the city of Belgrade in the kingdom of Hungary. On June 29th, Pope Calixtus ordered all churches in Christendom to ring their bells every day at noon to remind all the faithful to pray for the defeat of the invading army and the protection of Christian Europe. This was the origin of the still-existing tradition of church bells ringing at noon as a reminder to pray. At the same time, the Pope sent out an urgent appeal to all the leaders of Europe to aid the besieged city of Belgrade. Though help was slow in coming, the Christian armies, led by the King of Hungary and encouraged by St. John Capistran, successfully broke the siege on July 22nd. The good news reached Pope Calixtus on August 6th, the traditional date for celebrating the Transfiguration. In thanksgiving to God for hearing their prayers and granting the victory, he established the Transfiguration of the Lord as a universal feast for the whole Roman Catholic Church. Two years later, Pope Calixtus himself died on that very feast, August 6th. Forty days after August 6th, every year the Church celebrates the triumph 
or Exaltation of the Cross, on September 14th. Here in this fallen world, we cannot separate the light of Christ from the cross of Christ. To venture more fully into the light, we always must venture through the way of the cross, following the path of Jesus himself. When that way becomes dark and our footsteps falter, we must remember the majesty of the Lord as it has been revealed to us, and let that kindle hope within us. This is what Peter did for himself, and what he invites us all to do, calling to mind what Jesus revealed on the holy mountain, and being attentive to it as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. In the conference, we will get practical about how to exercise that crucial virtue of hope. But for now, let's take some time in the quiet of our hearts to let the light of Christ's glory remove the scandal of the cross. Questions for personal reflection or group discussion. How do I usually respond when the sufferings of life, the scandal of the cross, start to weigh me down? How is the Lord inviting me to respond? What does it mean for me to be attentive to the light of the gospel as a lamp shining in a dark place? How attentive am I? What can I do this coming week to be more attentive? What personal or family tradition could I begin in order to celebrate the transfiguration of the Lord more meaningfully and fruitfully every year on August 6th? Three quotations to aid your meditation. St. John of the Cross. And I saw the river over which every soul must pass to reach the kingdom of heaven. And the name of that river was suffering. And I saw a boat which carries souls across the river. And the name of that boat was love. St. Teresa of Calcutta. The joy of loving Jesus comes from the joy of sharing in his sufferings. So do not allow yourselves to be troubled or distressed, but believe in the joy of the resurrection. In all of our lives, as in the life of Jesus, the resurrection has to come. The joy of Easter has to dawn. Second Peter chapter 1 verses 16 through 19. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we had been eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when that unique declaration came to him from the majestic glory. This is my son, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice come from heaven, 
when we were with him on the holy mountain. Moreover, we possess the prophetic message that is altogether reliable. You will do well to be attentive to it, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Conference, Hope and the Memory Stone Prayer. St. Peter's experience of the Transfiguration stayed with him throughout his life, as we saw in the meditations. It became an anchor of hope for him amidst the storms of life's uncertainties and struggles, a light that served as a lamp shining in a dark place. We all need an anchor of hope in life. In fact, hope is one of the three theological virtues that make up the very DNA of every Christian's spiritual life. Here's how the Catechism defines hope. Hope is the theological virtue by which we desire the kingdom of heaven and eternal life as our happiness, placing our trust in Christ's promises, and relying not on our own strength, but on the help of the grace of the Holy Spirit. In other words, Hope is the engine of our spiritual life. It purifies our desires so that we learn to look for fulfillment where it truly can be found. And it energizes us to pursue those good desires by fueling courageous trust in God's grace. The virtue of hope is connected to joy and perseverance and freedom from the tangled webs of selfishness and discouragement. Here is another description of this amazing virtue from the Catechism. The virtue of hope responds to the aspiration to happiness which God has placed in the heart of every man. It takes up the hopes that inspire men's activities and purifies them, so as to order them to the kingdom of heaven. It keeps man from discouragement. It sustains him during times of abandonment. It opens up his heart in expectation of eternal beatitude. Buoyed up by hope, he is preserved from selfishness and led to the happiness that flows from charity. Wouldn't we all like to grow in such a powerful virtue? Wouldn't we all like to have that kind of hope be the real anchor of our everyday lives? How to exercise and grow in hope is what this conference is all about. For Peter, James, and John, the unforgettable experience of Christ's majesty on Mount Tabor during the Transfiguration became just such an anchor, an inexhaustible source of fuel for the hope they needed to live their Christian lives to the full. You and I were not present on Mount Tabor 2,000 years ago. We didn't share that specific experience. But God has given each one of us our own Tabor moments. He has given us unique experiences of His divine majesty and grace. Maybe it came during a powerful retreat or an unforgettable pilgrimage. Maybe it was linked to the reception of a sacrament, like First Communion or Confession or marriage. Maybe it simply came late at night during a walk under the stars. Each one of us has had experiences in which God made His presence, His reality, his interest in our lives undeniably real. Exercising and growing in hope involves maximizing those experiences 
by learning to remember them and pray with them. One of God's most frequent complaints in the Old Testament has to do with Israel's memory problems. God consistently performed amazing miracles for them, but then when life got back to normal, they would forget about the miracles and start doubting his faithfulness. Psalm 106, for example, describes this unfortunate tendency as follows. The Lord rescued them from hostile hands, freed them from the power of the enemy. The waters covered their oppressors, not one of them survived. Then they believed his words and sang his praise. But they soon forgot all he had done. They had no patience for his plan. In the desert, they gave in to their cravings, tempted God in the wasteland. When we forget our Tabor moments, our hope in God weakens. We lose sight of the light shining in the darkness, and we become vulnerable to temptations of every kind. When Joshua brought the Israelites across the Jordan River and into the Promised Land after their forty years of wandering through the wilderness, he tried to give them an antidote to that kind of spiritual forgetfulness. To bring them across the Jordan River, God miraculously stopped the river from flowing, so that the whole nation of Israel walked through the dry riverbed. As soon as the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant walked into the river, the waters stopped flowing. The people passed through it to the Promised Land. And then Joshua made a wise move. Before bringing the Ark of the Covenant out of the river, he sent twelve men into the dry riverbed and instructed each of them to carry a large rock from the bottom of the river over to the Promised Land side where the people were gathered. Each of these stones was a reminder of God's faithful commitment to Israel because the only way they could have been retrieved from the bottom of the river was through God's miraculous intervention. In a way, they were meant to be a reminder of all the miracles God had performed to bring his people to the promised land, a reminder of all the Tabor moments the Israelites had experienced in their long exodus. Joshua had these twelve stones piled together to form a monument, a memorial, that would forever remind the Israelites of God's goodness, closeness, and power. Here is what he said. Summoning the twelve men he had selected from among the Israelites, one from each tribe, Joshua said to them, Go to the Jordan riverbed in front of the ark of the Lord your God. Lift to your shoulders one stone apiece, so that they will equal in number the tribes of the Israelites. In the future, these are to be a sign among you. When your children ask you, What do these stones mean to you? You shall answer them, The waters of the Jordan ceased to flow before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord when it crossed the Jordan. Thus these stones are to serve as a perpetual memorial to the Israelites. Joshua set up this everlasting memorial so that the people would remember God's faithfulness to them, not lose hope, and thus stay faithful to God. The memory stones were an anchor of hope for the new phase of history Israel was beginning. We, too, need to make our Tabor moments into memory stones. We need to keep them in mind so that our hope stays strong and even grows. Only a firm anchor can keep our hearts and minds steady throughout the storms and trials of life in this fallen world. 
How do we transform our Tabor moments into memory stones? One way is to take time for what can be called the memory stone meditation. Psychologists point out that significant memories can be accessed or remembered on at least four different levels. First, there is the event itself, the simple narration of what actually happened. Second, there is the emotional experience that accompanied that event, how we felt about what was happening when it was happening. Third, there is the meaning the event had for us at the time, what impact it had on our lives. And fourth, there is the meaning the event had in the larger story of our lives, the meaning it takes on with the benefit of hindsight. These four levels can serve as a path for praying through our Tabor moments, turning them into memory stones that can continue to shine the light of God's majesty into our hearts and minds. Let's go through an example to show how this works. As we all remember, the essence of Christian meditation, also known as mental prayer, is conversing with God using our own words. As in every good conversation, this one involves listening to God, considering what He says, and responding from our hearts. Usually, we listen to Him through a quiet, reflective reading of the sacred scripture or some other good spiritual book. Sometimes we can listen by gazing at the beauty of His creation or of a great work of art. Praying through our Tabor moments and turning them into memory stones involves listening to God as He spoke to us through our own past experiences of His goodness and power. One of my experiences of His goodness and power came a few years after I had joined the seminary. The first point for meditating on our Tabor moments is simply to recall the event itself. So, here is what happened. My dad, who was an atheist at the time, was extremely unhappy with my decision to become a priest. He didn't support me at all. During my two years of novitiate, we corresponded, but he kept discouraging me from continuing and repeatedly expressed his disapproval of my decision. This was hard for me. I loved my dad. We had a beautiful friendship. I didn't want to lose it. But I knew God was calling me. Nothing I said seemed to help the situation. All I could do was pray. It was an ongoing source of anxiety throughout my novitiate. When I finished those two years of discernment and intense spiritual formation, I professed my vows and went home to visit my family. At the time, my dad was living alone. I was so nervous, not knowing if he would be happy to see me, not knowing what it would be like to spend time together under these circumstances. I arrived, and we stood in the kitchen and started chatting. We talked about the weather and other general topics for a while. Then he told me about a recent conversation he had had with an old high school buddy. They ran into each other on the sidewalk one day, and his buddy started asking my dad about us kids. So my dad told him what my two sisters were doing, and then he reluctantly admitted that I was training to become a Catholic priest. According to my dad, his friend stopped walking, turned towards him, and said in response, Well, at least somebody's doing something worthwhile with their life. As my dad finished telling me the story, he turned to me, smiled, and remarked, I guess that's kind of a compliment. With that, I knew that he had accepted my vocation. God had found a way to overcome his resistance. It was a dramatic, unpredictable answer to my prayers. 
a true Tabor experience. That's what happened. Simply remembering the event in that way can be a prayerful reflection, like talking over old times with a friend. The second level of remembering is recalling what we felt during the Tabor experience. When my dad smiled and expressed his acceptance of my vocation, I was flooded with a deep sense of relief. The anxiety and tension about our relationship I had been carrying for the past two years simply dissolved. I was just so glad to know that my following the Lord wasn't going to alienate my dad. I remember feeling a profound gladness, interior peace, and gratitude mixed in with that immense relief. Recalling those feelings can also be part of our prayer. Those feelings resulted indirectly, in this case, from the action of God in my life. They are a sign of God's reality, of God's personal interest in my life. God is real, and He had a real influence on my emotional world in that moment. The third level of remembering touches on the meaning of the event for us in that moment of our life. For me, it was a confirmation that I was following the right path. And it was also a confirmation that God cared about that path and about my life. It was a glimpse of divine light in the ordinary flow of daily life, a glimpse that touched me deeply and gave me a surge of spiritual energy. It really did nourish my hope in God and motivate me to continue seeking His will and following wherever He led. That experience of His faithfulness to me fed my desire to be faithful to Him. You can see how clearly this kind of consideration easily flows into a prayer of gratitude, adoration, praise, and humility. Finally, the fourth level of remembering invites us to see how that Tabor moment fit into the larger story of one's life as a whole. This is the hindsight perspective on the past experience. Years later, I can now see how that encounter with his high school buddy was just one step along a path of grace. God continued to work in and through my relationship with my dad, enriching both of us through the love we had for each other. Little by little, over the years, his heart became more open to the faith, and the Lord continued to draw us closer to each other until I was able to administer God's mercy to him just before he passed away. Seeing that Tabor moment from this perspective also nourishes my hope in God, my confidence in the reality of his wisdom and the power of his providence. He has a plan, and it is unfolding under his loving gaze, even though I can't always see it. That experience of my dad accepting my vocation was a powerful Mount Tabor experience for me. But if I never intentionally remember it, if I don't bring it into prayerful reflection and conversation with God, I will shortchange the light and grace it was meant to bring me. This four-step meditation on our Tabor moments is one way to help make sure that doesn't happen. It's a way to create memory stones, anchors of hope, that can shine like lamps as we make our way through this fallen world to the Father's house. Take some time now to answer the personal questionnaire, which is designed to help you apply these general truths to your unique, specific situation. Personal Questionnaire 
How would I describe, in my own words, what the theological virtue of hope really is? How would I describe in my own words the benefits that a strong virtue of hope has for a Christian soul? How would I describe in my own words what a Tabor moment is? Take some time to make a list of the Tabor moments I have experienced in my life so far. Choose one of those moments and use the four levels of memory, the event itself, the emotions accompanying the event at the time, the meaning of the event at the time, the meaning of the event in the whole story of my life, to pray through that moment, making it into a memory stone. Continue doing that, little by little, with all my Tabor moments, enjoying God's action in my life and nourishing my soul on it. For further reading, Jesus of Nazareth, From the Baptism in the Jordan to the Transfiguration, by Pope Benedict XVI. The Better Part, a Christ-centered resource for personal prayer, by Father John Bartunik, L.C. On Hope, by Joseph Pieper. Faith, Hope and Love, by Joseph Pieper. The Shadow of His Wings, The True Story of Father Gerion Goldman, OFM, by Gerion Goldman. A Memory for Wonders, A True Story. Veronica Namioyo Lagoulard and Mother Mary Francis. If you like this retreat, please help support future retreat guides by making a donation at rcspirituality.org. Retreat guides are a service of Regnum Christi, regnumchristi.org. Retreat guides are produced by Coronation, coronationmedia.com. <laughs>